Hi, how are you doing? Hi, morning, Richmond. So we were just um, before starting the recording. Um, no, no, I noticed that you're standing and I'm standing. I think that's the first time. It, I almost feel like we we're going to play tennis or something. <laughs> yes, I've just um, been using a standing desk for about six months, and it's made such a big difference. I love it. Yeah. So what what did you do before? What sitting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's um, you know, I like to move around, and I think it's quite inspirational, really. And I think it helps it helps me chunk up my day a bit more and um, think about what I'm doing and, and and take time to reflect in a very easy way. Um, yeah. So that's yeah. made a big difference. Do you, Do you think that being able to move around while you're working helps you think in a different way? Oh yes, hugely. And I think that's been a a benefit that I've seen from having the standing desk. Yeah. So when you're, when you're having sort of mm. when you're sort of having meetings and things, do you do you do some little exercises under because you obviously you can I can see you know your top half I can't see what you're doing with your legs. So you <laughs> might be doing some sort of yoga pose. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm constantly moving. I, I'm not really standing still for too long. And what I'm trying to be is sort of active with my stance, not passive. Because I mean, I think you can sort of stand and sway and just you know kind of relax too much into it but I, I try and be active and, and think about moving from one leg and the other and forward and back and uh, yeah lots of little knee bends and things. Mm, excellent so so how important is movement to us as humans? Well next to breathing it's uh <laughs> it's key isn't it to keep all the uh the whole system running I think yeah. Yeah now now you've spent um recent times in particular putting this into your sort of if you call it under your academic hat would that be fair to say yes yeah, so I've just um completed my PhD and um I sort of I didn't think about it 25 years ago but certainly I've been collecting data and papers um throughout my career and in the last year I've had an opportunity to write it up and really explore movement and think about what is the difference between movement and exercise and how important movement is um, for people to be able to engage in life. Um, Kelly McGonigal's, uh, she's written a book, The Joy of Movement, and she talks about, you know, her def definition of movement is using the body to engage with life. And I think, you know, that's what I'm really focusing on now. It's not so much, oh, just do this exercise or get better, but what makes people move differently? And can we evaluate it and change it so that they're able to have a better quality of life. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're talking about people's potential in, in particular environments uh, to, to do the things that they both want to and need to. Absolutely, yes. And there are so many factors that influence movement. And certainly in my career, um, I trained as a manual therapist long, long, long time ago. And when I trained as a manual therapist, you know, I, I learned in detail, you know, joint mobilization, restrictions, neural mobilization, and, you know, all the different parts. Um, but what I'm sort of realizing now, and as I'm doing my clinical work now, is all the factors that influence movement. And it's not just the musculoskeletal factors, you know, the, the mind and body. And I've been reading a little bit of your work, and it, it just fits so nicely with helping people move so yes we need to restore you know joint mobility but it's also about the mindset and i i did write a little bit about that in my phd 
what, what was the title of your PhD? What, what, what's it called? Um, it's called The Health and Movement, Restoring Movement Choices in Individuals for Long-Term Health. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And, and the fact that you've got, you've got choice in there. And, that, and choice is, is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it's, um, it sort of implies that, that, you know, we've got various routes that, that we could select depending on, you know, various factors. But then you kind of wondered, you know, someone who's in trouble, whether it be pain or, or some kind of limitation, they, they haven't chosen that. So what, what do you mean by choice? Yeah, so what I'm exploring in my PhD is movement coordination strategies. So the way we move is as a result of the way that we coordinate movement, both the joints or we could look at how we coordinate muscles. But I focus really on the coordination of, of joints. And what we know from the literature is that people can change their coordination strategies for a number of reasons. Obviously, most of the research has focused on pain, but I think there are lots of other elements that change the way that we move. And then that means that we lose these choices in movement. And if we lose some choices, we're gonna to have to rely on others to back up. And that's when we get this sort of repetitive movement pattern, which may end up being painful, it's inefficient, it's hard work. Um, and people can't do what they want in a way that they want want to. Yeah. So, th so these are the kinds of, of restrictions that people might face. And, and it sounds like the restrictions could be in literally, well, I can't, I can't get my body to do that thing that I, I wanted to do. But equally, it could be a restriction in, oh, no, I'm not even going to try that. Absolutely. So I think there is a huge element, isn't there, about the mind. And I think the mind and how we in interpret pain, that can have a big influence on our movement coordination strategies. So what I'm always thinking in the clinic are what are the elements that, that lead to the change in the movement pattern? So I'm not just saying, oh, you know, do this exercise and it's all gonna be okay. We want to, to look and see how the factors interact to change the movement um, and, you know, breathing I think it can be a huge element that if we can change the way people breathe they find that they're freer with their movement well I know that could be defined as an exercise but we're looking here more at a maybe as a way of, of sort of calming and influencing the pain and the interpretation of that so kind of using using breathing as a as a primer if you like as a as something that you could do before you then try and rehearse a new movement or, or something else yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, you know, my one of my areas of interest is the neck and shoulder. And I think many people presenting with neck and shoulder, or even back pain, all sorts of pain, they change the way that they breathe over time, um, probably in a response to pain. And I think, you know, that can be a very powerful clinical tool to change people's movement patterns. So I don't think it always has to be really formal um, kind of exercises but we need to sort of find ways in to change people's movement and what I presented in my PhD are tools to assess those movement coordination strategies and I've been teaching that for 25 years but really like the science behind it so we can look at and assess people's movement choices and then that gives us an opportunity to tailor make a retraining strategy for them and then we can go back and reassess. So I think that's very, very powerful rather than the way it has gone in a lot of the literature, you've got a shoulder impingement, you're going to do these exercises. Mm. Um, 
but more tailor making it depending on the factors that are influencing their movement. Yeah. So how, so how does that begin? So some, someone comes to see you um, and, and I guess the presentation could be you know, any number of, of different things. Um, but but what, what are your sort of initial, oh, it sounds a bit, a bit clunky, but, but objectives when you first meet someone, what, what are you trying to establish? Yeah, I think the very first time um, I see somebody or even actually before they make an appointment, I mean, I always, um, you know, my, my, my clinic is called the Moonwork, so I think it's fairly obvious, you know, what they're coming for. So, you know, they've got to sort of think, they're going to be thinking about how their movement and their problem relates. But the very first thing um, I really explore is the narrative. You know, I want to really understand the history and the presentation and the factors influencing. And I, I think it can be really interesting um, what people can say and how that can guide to the objective assessment. And I always think that I've done a, a kind of um, a successful um, first time uh, appointment when my, my patient's almost saying to me, ah, oh, so if I do this or if I change that, I can see that there's a route to, to getting better. So I, I'm really exploring that narrative really as a route to helping to educating them in factors that change their movement and because they're the ones that are gonna have to change the movement. I can only guide them and facilitate them. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so it's kind of helping them to see the things or realize the things that they can start doing you know, straight away to, to feel some kind of change, some kind of benefit. Yes, I think um, before that, they, they can, you know, by doing this objective exam, they can see what they can do and what they can't do and yep. then link what they can't do to their narrative. And then I think that's a winner, really. And I, I, I noticed reading some of your work that, you know, you, you talk a lot about education. And I think that um, movement education is really key, that the, the patient really understands. And then from that, I'm developing, you know, thinking about coaching that movement rather than just giving them a set of exercises because that often doesn't work because if they've lost, lost their choices, it's not easy for them to restore them. And that's when, you know, things like the breath, I think really help because it almost like, you know, sets a, a baseline and then they've got to start because a lot of the retraining comes from, you know, they've got to really focus in the mind to find that movement in their body because it's, it's, uh, it's gone, you know, it's not, it's not efficient and they, they need to dig deep to find it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You, you know, using the word coaching and, and, and the focus and, you know, there's the need to really commit to doing something rather than just the doff of a hat or just being interested um, and, and being present. And I guess the if you're encouraging people to use breathing, that's helping them to be present to then really focus on the things that you're encouraging them to do. Yeah, so I think it kind of adds up that we've we've got the narrative. They can see how the way they move relates to their problem and then um, with the education piece, they've got to, um, you know, appreciate there is a time element to it. It's not like doing this two or three times and it's all going to be good. They've got mm -hmm. to do it day in, day out, and they've got to commit to doing it. I can't do it for them. Um, and then for me, not overwhelming them with information. And I think as, my experience, as I get more experienced, 
I'm much better able to choose the one thing that's going to make the difference so that they can go home, come, you know, go um, or stay at home, <laughs> you know, that yeah. they can, um, you know, really focus on that and make a change rather than, you know, going through their list of, you know, 10 exercises and they're just sort of doing them like they're, they're um, you know, picked up a video off YouTube. Yeah, I think that that's always struck me as being one of the issues with um, with physio. And, you know, we've both been in healthcare for, for, for quite a long time and, and seeing, seeing the changes over the years from, you know, very much people come in, they expect and we expect to just sort of do something to them, give them a couple of things to, to kind of do at home and, and, and hope that they get better. And, and, and some people did occasionally, I suppose. Um, but, but if it's slightly more complex or chronic or, or whatever, then, yeah, there's, there's very little chance that that's going to do anything, you know, meaningful. Um, so do you, how, how do you feel that your, your way of working has, has changed over those, over those years? I think I'm much more holistic. And I think my experience of changing my own movement patterns has helped me develop a way of engaging with, with clients in a much better way and patients to help them see what their problem is and for them to own the problem. So I think that's a big, a big factor. Um, and, and looking at all the different elements, you know, that it's not just the joint, it's, you know, the, the mind element as well and how, how that fits. And I, I think, you know, certainly, you know, we're moving away from this time now where it was, well, you know, you're either kind of a musculoskeletal therapist or you, you know, you're a pain therapist and it, it just didn't really make sense to me. And I think, you know, certainly for me, it's kind of merging much more together and learning these coaching skills. I think that's a, something that I didn't, you know, I learned the sort of practical technical stuff. I think one thing that's really moved my practice along in a funny sort of way is virtual assessments because, you know, you have to be kind of on it a lot more. And I don't know if you found this, that somehow you're engaging with people in, in a very different way that in this environment, I think really works. Um, I, 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 I think it's a very powerful tool actually. And much to my surprise, getting very, very good results. I think because I'm having to, you know, really focus, but also engaging the patient to, to take ownership and to understand the changes they've got to make. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think there's been some there's some real advantages of, of working online. And I don't know if you were, were you doing that before we we kind of really got into it over the last year or so. Uh, no. Okay. No, a bit, but not much. No, I was definitely, um, you know, just more face to face, really. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so when when did you start doing the online version? Well, more seriously, you know, during the you know d during the lockdown, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so I've done some. Um, but not as much. And, and I think it's very, very powerful. I think it's, and I think with this movement retraining, it's just easy for people to do it. You know, you're in there, they're in their own environment and you can see how, you know, how are you going to do this? Just show me. And, you know, they've got to, you know, then they're, they're, they're familiar with it. Whereas I think sometimes, you know, we set them up in a clinic to do these things. I mean, are they really going to be able to reproduce that at home? So I think, 
um, I think it's always very difficult the first session or so with people to get them finding that new pattern. And once they've got it, they're up and running almost. Um, and I think that's very effective to do online. Yeah. Do, do you think you'll you'll carry on doing online? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It, it seems, yeah, and I think that as, as again, as a profession, um, that's, that's going to be a, a really useful step forward. You're the whole bind of appointments and, you know, we've, we've spent our whole lives rushing around according to a diary. And it, it's still that to an extent. But, but have you found that it's just given you and, and the people that want to work with you much more flexibility? Yes, I think it's given, yeah both them and me more flexibility and I think it's also given me more opportunities to give more information in terms of the coaching and the follow-up and the other elements that are not just in the one-to-one -one. so I think that the, the package is much better for the person to be able to change their life for the better and move so they can use their body to engage life which is why they're coming to see me um, and I think it also puts the onus towards the patient that they, they're the ones that have got to change it. Whereas, you know, people, you know, still think, oh, you know, I'm going to go to the physio as if something magic is going to happen and gonna, the problem is just suddenly going to go away. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a key point, isn't it? The fact that they're, they're doing it in their environment straight away. There's no, there's no need yeah. to translate it. Um, and so immediately, you know that that's their affordance they're you know they're they're they agents of their own their own movement in that particular environment um which and, is great. you know i was looking at, at some literature the other day you know 80 of people that up to 80 percent of people that get neck pain have a recurrence so that, that that's a whole different story isn't it is one thing managing a problem that somebody presents with and i think that's you know fairly easy to do with because we've got a whole array of techniques haven't we to make people feel better in terms of mobilizing joints and you know 101 manual therapy techniques and certainly we I think we're quite effective at that but you know what the literature is saying isn't it from the neck and the back and other joints that it's the recurrence that's the problem and so my story in my thesis was one of the stories there was you know is our changes in our patterns of movement a factor leading to that recurrence yeah and I think it's quite challenging um you know I, I found that it's much easier to sell that online yeah. because you know, there's no other option whereas you know when you've got somebody in a clinic they oh yes but could you you know just mm. you know fix yeah. this pain for me in the neck and, and yeah. then then it gets better and they, they still got the movement problem yeah, that's it, isn't it? There's there's a lot of um, recurrence, um, and I guess there what, what we're talking about is is habits and and existing habits. You know, just just the ways that people are doing things, the way that they sit, the way that they the way that they work or play sport or or whatever. Um, and and unless unless they create something different, some different patterns, then even if you treat them in the old sort of style way. You know, it, it is likely to just come back at some point. Yes, and I think that's what, you know, that's what my PhD is about, is about evaluating those movement choices. So 
if you treat them and the pain goes away and they they restore their movement choices, well, that's that's okay, isn't it? That's good. But the chances are, and the literature really is showing that, that once you've, you've had a pain episode, you may well stick with changes in those movement choices. And then that just changes the way that we move. And, you know, what I really see in a lot of my patients is, you know, they still go walking, they still walk the dog, they still drive, they still do all their activities, they still want to play their sport and they'll sort of like push through it because they want to, mm. but if they haven't got, you know, they've got changes in movement choices, it will change the way they move for the, for the long term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, people often like to um, keep going, or a certain number of people will like to keep going. How, how do you, how do you rein them back? How do you say, look, you know, you, you're going to have to ease off here and here and then you're going to need to do these things how, how do you get people to to do that when they they just want to keep playing keep walking keep doing those things well I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the narrative and getting them relating the narrative to their their movement the changes in their movement and I think you know it's sort of a discussion about you know they've got to change the movement if this is stopping them then they've got to rein it in, in a bit if if it's not really stopping them then I think you know I, I'm not always too harsh with them because I'm saying look, this is what you've got to do <laughs> you know, yeah. if you want to keep bashing it then it's going to take you twice as long and as I think it's that owning the problem and really understanding the changes of why people are doing the retraining because some of the retraining that I do you know is is sort of crazily boring and not very exciting but once they've got it that's it they've changed it and I think it's really selling isn't it that the, the problem they're presenting with to their narrative and if we can link the two then they'll buy in more yeah yeah how, how much variability do you think there is in in the way that we we move because I know, you know, in the past there have been schools of thought around where you move in this particular way and, and this is what, what we're aiming for. Um, and of course, we all have our own idiosyncrasies, our own build, et cetera, et cetera. But are there, are there sort of general themes or is it is it really very individual? I think from my understanding, it is very individual and it's very individual. Um, you know, on a repetitive task, if you lift your arm up three times, you're going to move in three different ways. There are general trends in how we move, but the argument that um, you know, was discussed in my thesis really is that you really need a choice of how you move and it's when you lose the choice. And that's what our assessment system is for, is identifying those lost movement choices. So rather than saying you must move like this, what we're saying is you need that option to move so you don't always use the same options yeah. so i think you know there's a lot of um of talk in this in the um, movement literature now about motor abundance and motor abundance means that we've got different options to move to do the same task so that is perfectly normal so variability is absolutely normal um, but when we lose variability, we're putting ourselves at risk. And there is, um, you know, some evidence beginning to emerge that the change in variability is linked to injury, not only ongoing injury, but also um, the onset of injury. So keeping movement variability is key. And, yeah. our, you know, our living now <laughs> doesn't really doesn't really do that. You know, we sit for long periods. 
apart from you and me here standing <laughs> yeah. um and and you know doing the same things exercising in the same way um doing the same you know driving you know long distances in the same position etc and i think over time we lose we lose those choices so what we're assessing is the choices, not how you, you know, it's the outcome of those choices. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's really interesting around the sort of variability. Um, I mean, I know that, for example, um, more experienced runners will have more variety in their in their strides. Um, and and that's that seems to be an advantage. You know, then you think about emotions, you know, having a, a wider range of 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 words to describe different emotions gives you that flexibility. So variability seems to be something that's that's important for us as humans. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, both both emotionally and, and, and physically, we need to maintain that variability as we go through life. And, you know, what the science is telling us is that if you have a pain reason, a pain for any reason, that can change your variability and that can lead to these ongoing problems. And I think that's why for me, the narrative is very important at the beginning when we, when we, when I, when I see a patient to really understand the history or, and, you know, what they do and, you know, about their running and how it's changed and how they feel about it. And, um, you know what they've noticed because I think those are all little pointers that help us then do a sort of a assessment that's tailored for them and then the retraining that's tailored for them yeah yeah the um I I, I don't know but but I'm assuming that that student physios are still kind of taught the, the kind of pro forma way of assessing and 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 I guess there are certain advantages to that in that you've got to start somewhere you need some kind of framework but but then the, the way you're describing your assessment sounds much more like uh, an open conversation about what that person's been experiencing and what it's like to be them. Yes, I think, but, but then I suppose my experiences make me kind of channel that a lot easier. And, you know, students have to start somewhere because they don't have that experience. So I think, yes, you know, I've been doing this for so long, I can channel that narrative better to get the information out of the of the of the patient, I did um, listen to Roger Kerry. I know he was. Um, you, you talked to him recently, and you know I, I love the way that he thinks about um, you know the, the narrative and the, and the patient. And you know he talks very much about how the causal factors you know interact with each other. And I think that's something that we've got to really think about moving forward. Is that we, you know, I was taught, you know, that things were sort of discrete entities, you know, it's, you've got a stiffness in your um, Achilles, or, you know, you, you've got a stiff joint here, or that's restricted, or you've got a neural issue here, and you, you're, you've also, you know, got emotional elements, etc. They were all sort of very disparate. And I think what I'm really beginning to see now is that they all interact with each other and they, 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 they tend towards this effect rather than saying it's your, the stiffness in your ankle that's causing this. Yeah. Um, and that's, that, that, as I keep going back to this narrative, I think that's what we need to be exploring in the narrative is how these elements work. Yeah. Together. And it's, it's much more complex, of course, to, you know, what we're talking about there. And, and seeing the person as a whole and be able to sort of zoom out and, and explore that narrative and, and help that person to, 
to see all these different things in in their life and the things that they're saying and how it relates to their their single experience it's much easier to think well there's a stiff joint we can mobilize that and then all will be well um how how, how do you think how do you think students can can kind of t- bridge that gap how, how can they get there what kinds of things do you think they could do gosh it's not really something that i've given much talk, thought to in recent years i don't i don't really come across many undergraduate students but certainly in the teaching that i do for postgraduate um i think it's it's really pushing this element at the moment about looking at the movement outcome rather than all the individual constraints and it's really challenging when I'm teaching because we'll, you know, we'll be looking at a movement of the neck and they'll go, oh, yes, but, you know, they can't keep the hands off mobilizing the joint. Okay, no, 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 let's forget about that at the moment. Let's just see what the influence of that is on the movement. So I think we really want to encourage people to look at the movement outcome as a baseline and then sort of tracking back and seeing how these things influence the movement. So I was taught, you know, if you mobilize the joint, the movement's better. If you mobilize the joint, the pain gets better. But which may well be so, but it's the movement that matters. It's it's mm-hmm. what the person does with that movement. That's how they're interacting and doing the things that they want. Yeah. Yeah, no, so I should I should have rephrased that because when I meant student, that, that could have been the, the postgrad yeah. people as well. So yes. it's just helping people to move. And it's, you know, it, it is a big, it's a big leap um from from that kind of very sort of biomedically based thinking of of structures um so so when when you're teaching people um do you are you ever tempted to sort of tie their hands behind their back well of course you know the other thing is that we've done quite a bit of teaching online recently that's (laughs) you know that's that's been a real solution and i think the, the the other the other part that that comes with this teaching is, I really believe that moving movement coaching um, and like the coaching that you do with pain, it's a real skill that people have got to learn. And I think, you know, when, you, when I learned to be a manual therapist, I mean, it took me years of practice and training. And I think some people think they can go on a course and they'll just learn all this movement stuff kind of overnight. And what they, what they go ahead, away with in their head is a bunch of exercises, but we've got to, you know, I'm really passionate about helping people assess their clients' movements and then working backwards yeah. and, 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 and having a, a set of tools to evaluate movement. Because like you said, you know, it's very easy for people to sit on a course and go, oh yeah, well, everybody moves differently. But it's not about that. <laughs> it's about have they got their movement choices? And if they've lost their movement choices, does it relate to the problem that they're um, presenting with does it relate to the stiff joint does it relate to their their fear of movement or their emotions or uh, their change of breathing and their overactive scans all those factors feed into the movement outcome so I think that's and that's really you know what I kind of want to champion after my PhD that we're evaluating the health of movement and we can give all students the opportunity to evaluate that and make changes yeah and the, the other thing they can do, of course, is once they've evaluated the movement, you know, they all sneak back and then do a quick mobilization. <laughs> and, you know, if it's changed the movement, that's good, but they've got to maintain that because it, it's easy to change the movement, but it's what we're wanting is to change it in the long term. Yeah. 
and that does take toning and you know how long does it take well i mean you know the literature says anything from four weeks to you know 12 14 16 years a huge um variety but we need to have the tools to be able to make a decision about whether we think there's there's still a problem or not so yeah yeah yeah, yeah so as, there's loads in what you said there that, that's really interesting and um you know one thing is is it's not just you know your your work trying to change the way the people who are struggling with movement think about what they're doing and and how they can improve their lives but there's also this big element isn't there of 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 the clinicians themselves and being able to be really self-aware you know be be aware of when they're tempted to to sort of use their hands perhaps or or what approach they they take, or what they call themselves. And you're right. You know these things. To you, you, you can't just be a coach by saying I'm a coach. You can't be a coach by doing a weekend course. You you become a coach like you become you know like a physio over a long period of time. Um, and you know these these are there are particular skills because you're trying to encourage someone and guide someone to do certain things that they need to do over and over and over. And and that that somewhere in that relationship that you create with that person, I think, is the gold that that from that emerges that person. See, I, I'm I'm going to do these things. I'm really going to commit to it. And I think, you know, learning exercises and telling people to do exercises is easy. You know, anyone could do that. Um, but but translating that into someone effectively getting better, I think, is 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 a real skill in itself. Yes, and I think, you know, there's there's a lot, there's not a lot, but there's, you know, I, I pick up the old article, you know, about, you know, adherence, and it's not great, is it? And, you know, what are people adhering to, you know, that, that they've got to tick off their sheet of exercises every day, that they don't know why they're doing them or what the outcome is. And I think that we need to be looking at that movement coaching piece to help with that adherence. And I, I really like what you say there, you know, you've, we've got to, you've got to develop that relationship and 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 work together to get to the, the the goal that we want to and get people really owning that problem and and the belief i think this is the other thing the belief that they can change it and that that comes from expertise doesn't it from you know i mean hopefully i can talk a good story and people can think oh you know she's onto something and i i can feel it and and i know you've talked about that word sort of embodiment on your website and they're embodying that and they think wow, that was easy, but that one was really difficult. And mm. um, one of my patients said to me yesterday, oh, that exercise is just too hard, you know, not physically, but she just kind of me mentally is so challenging for her. It's like, yeah, you're a winner there because, but she can feel that. And then it's, you've got to get it right, haven't I? I've got to get it challenging enough that it's going to make a difference, but not too easy that it, it's not going to challenge her. And then so I think that's a really important piece for the for the brain as well to to, to you're working on that cognitive element yeah. Um, too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of learning, isn't it? And and nothing nothing wrong with you know when someone comes back and says, "Oh, that was really hard." It's like great, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with something being hard where you you've got to persevere. And when I say hard, I don't mean you know painful. I encourage people to kind of keep things at a tolerable level, as I'm sure you do. But, but, but those things are great, and that's where the coaching element is so good because, you know, you can then explore that a little bit with that person so that they feel 
that actually well, I'm doing something useful here. I'm doing something that has meaning that's going to, you know, will very likely lead down a route where I'm going to be better or feel better. Yes, and I think it's, it's understanding, again, the changes um, that have occurred and how they can, they can make a difference and how long it's going to take. And it's not going to be a quick fix overnight, but they can do things every day that, that make a difference. And I think also managing flare-ups. I mean, if you've got somebody with neck pain and they drive to Scotland and back again, you know, it's, it, they've got to understand that they're, they're pushing into those patterns that provoke their symptoms and that they need to understand that. And it's not... The, it's not like it's not working, is it? It's just yeah. taking time and taking them through the journey. So I'm sure, you know, it's the same with your coaching, isn't it? It's, it's taking them through the journey. I'm there to help them get to the point where they're moving more efficiently and their symptoms are gone for the long term, not just the short term. Yeah, yeah, no, completely. And I've always loved the phrase, um, you know, we're, we're a guide on the side, not a sage on the stage. And, and I, I heard that from Steve Rolnick. Um, and, and I've always, you know, liked that way of, of thinking that we're there alongside them on, on this, on this, on their journey and, and being trying to be helpful. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, the flare up, there's, there's always going to be bumps in the road, um, yeah. particularly with a more persistent problem. Um, do, do you have that conversation with them early on about, you know, the, the journey ahead and there's going to be ups and downs and, and this is how we'll deal with it? Or how do you, how do you sort of explain the way onwards to them? Yes, and I, I think that the virtual consultations give a much better opportunity to address some of these issues. And I think that my practice has changed online quite a bit to really address these sort of factors early on. I think, because I have more time. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that's really important. And I think, again, it goes back to once we know what, their narrative, we've identified the change in the way that they move. And then we can sort of talk about the journey and what then they can start matching the aggravating factors. And then they can also, when we do the sort of retest, they can see how they're progressing. And then they can start weighing up, oh, that's not so good for me, <laughs> you know, mm. but if I do more of this, it's better. And, and that's that's what I'm trying to encourage in my my practice more now yes yeah so you get them to realize in, in you know good bad who knows I, I like those, those stories that that you know you could have a flare-up and immediately it's assumed to be this this negative this bad thing i'm not getting better whereas actually a flare-up could, could be on the journey getting better it's um it's a it's a learning opportunity well absolutely and i think if they can match what flared it up to what they were doing then they know that they they've got to change those choices and how they move. So in some ways, it is, it's a huge learning curve because it's like, well, I eat there's an even better, more reason why I've got to change, um, you know, the, the way that I'm just holding my neck with my scalenes all the time. You know, it's just not, it just doesn't, you know, give me what I want. It's giving me that that pain, the arm pain, and then they can start changing those things. Yeah. I heard something the other day, I can't remember who was saying it, it was nothing to do with what we're talking about here, but it struck because he, he was saying that, that everybody, everybody is in the business of behaviour change. Mm. No matter what you do, it's about behaviour change. Yeah, I think, um, 
I, I think I haven't paid enough attention to that in my career. Um, perhaps I think I've in the last, I think I did it more intuitively before, but now I'm sort of addressing it more head on so I can be more efficient and effective at that. And I think what my online consultation are doing is giving me the opportunity to address those more readily with resources that patients can use to understand how they can change their behavior rather than just coming to the clinic, checking how they're doing, and then they go away again. So I think that's something that we as a profession need to explore as, as we move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how, how have you found it to, to sort of change and update your, your practice? How, how do you find that process yourself? Well, I think I've always been quite forward thinking and I, I, you know, I enjoy that and I'm always challenging myself and I'm always doing new things. So recently I've just, um, done the yoga teacher training course and I always love doing these things to really understand how they think and how they do it and I, I found the breath work extraordinary and I just think wow you know that's going to make such a difference and I've you know used it on some of my patients and it's just transformed the way they think and move and I thought that was so easy in some ways but you know but I've, I've known about that for, for forever but I think it's experiencing it and, and then thinking how it fits into the goal of changing the way that people move. So, yeah, I mean, I'm always um, wanting to find better ways of doing things. And, you know, my PhD, that work was, you know, work that I sort of started 25 years ago. And, you know, a lot lot of it's been critiqued by a lot of people over the years. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, we all move differently. It's all a load of rubbish. And, you know, I've done quite a bit around the scapula oh, it's all sort of nonsense. And, you know, I can stand here now and say, you know, I've got all these papers to show that it, it's not nonsense. And I'm not saying what they're doing is nonsense, but, you know, there is, a, there is a place for this. And, you know, that that can can help us change the way that people move. So I'm quite used to being a bit of a, a sort of outsider and saying things that perhaps not everybody agrees with all the time. Yeah, well, it's a brave, it's a brave stance, and and one I you know admire and, and can relate to, because you know you you put some stuff out there, um, and and you're always you're always going to get get flack, um, and um, but that's that's sort of just part of the part of your journey, I suppose. Yes, and I think you know what what um, my professor at um, Southampton, Maria Stokes, she was always behind me and 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 pushing me to do my PhD. And, you know, at the end of my abstract, it, it sort of says, you know, that this PhD provides, you know, proof of concept for this assessment and retraining of movement coordination strategies. And I think, wow, you know, it was really worth it to, you know, this, you know that I've got to that stage now where there is, you know, proof of concept from the, from, the, from the papers that I've collected over those years. And what the PhD is, is, sort of, is a narrative of how those papers fit together and, and and look at this um, assessment and retraining of movement. And I think the nice thing that's opened up now, and you know, that's why it's just you know great talking to you, is that actually it's the person that fits in in that story as well. And it and, and there are lots of elements that change movement. But now we have a tool to assess and re- to assess movement, and we need to be a bit more open now about how we tailor make a plan for each individual. Yeah, which may yeah. or may not include exercise. Yeah, 
And and so this this tool that, that you're describing, and and obviously the, the, you brought in various elements as as we've been ch been chatting there. Can, can you can you sort of summarize it and, and bring it together so that people can go, yeah, I I know that tool now. I know what we're talking about. So what we're talking about is assessing for, for choices in movement coordination strategies. So a lot of the work that we started you know, 25 years ago when we started the business kinetic control, which is that educational um, company, which is now Chimera Movement Science. But we developed a program to help therapists identify those loss of movement choices with cognitive movement control tests. And so in my PhD, we looked at the um, validity and reliability um, of, of the testing system. Um, and we can do that sort of with single joints, which is more the kinetic control for pain, or we can do it for multi joints, which is more the sort of sports side where we can look at, you know, take a runner and look where maybe they've lost their movement choices and how it relates to potential injury or, or an issue that they've got with their running. So it's really taking those tests and interpreting those tests in relation to the individual. Yeah. And then we can use those as outcome measures as well. So we can you know, do an intervention and then go back and retest. Yeah. And yeah. then ultimately the patient, you know, for you as a runner, let's say you'd lost a movement coordination strategy. You might think that was a bad run. I'm just going to check whether I'm, you know, I'm still on top of that one. And, yeah. you know, people then are, you know, they're looking after their health more. So, you know, my PhD called the health of movement. We're, we're giving people strategies to look after the health of their movement. Yeah. Okay. So, is, can you give a, a more specific example then of, say, a runner? I mean, I'm a bit, being a bit biased here because you probably know I run. So, um, it, you know, I, I go out and you say, and I come back and I go, well, that that didn't that didn't feel great. What 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 kind of movements could I use to to kind of see? Well, oh yeah, that's not that wasn't really working very well. Well, there are two ways that we can do an assessment. We can just observe how you do something like a knee bend or a single leg dip or a, a, a hop, or we can ask you to keep one bit still and move something else, which is not something that we, I'd ever get you doing as a normal natural movement, but it's saying, do you have the choice to be able to keep this bit still and move something else? And if you don't, then that would mean that you've lost that movement choice. And then we'd think, well, is that relevant to your tight calf? Yeah. So, you know, we'd be looking all the way up the chain as well. And it could be that your calf is having to do more because you're not controlling hip flexion or something like that. Yeah. So it gives us a really good um, idea of what's going on. And then, you know, so we've got these testing systems where we can look at the movement coordination strategies of, of multi joints um, in, in multi different planes. And then we want to sort of narrow it down to what you're complaining about in your running. You know, was it, you know, what bit is not feeling right? Or, you know, you, you finding that, um, you know, your stride lengths change after you become fatigued or something. So then we can match that and then, and then retrain that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So, so what's your, what's your picture of success then with, with this and with your, your model and, and concept? Where, where are you hoping it's going to end up? Well, I, you know, I've got sort of various different elements. Um, you know, I'm involved with Chimera Movement Science and we're educating therapists and, and not only physiotherapists, but movement therapists and trainers really all over the world to assess and retrain movement. And I think 
what we're trying to turn them into is more movement coaches, like we said, so that they can change the outcome of the movement, not just the individual parts. Um, so that's the sort of educational piece. Um, you know, my clinical activity, you know, I want to do more online and broaden that and, and really like you going into more of the movement, well, for me, movement coaching world and exploring how we can do that better. Um, and then, you know, there are still papers to be written. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, always. Um, you know, I've still got um, three or four outstanding. So, you know, that, that's always a bit of a big job. So I think, you know, just really continuing to, to change the way that people think about physiotherapy. Physiotherapy is sort of defined as changing people's movement, but we got a bit lost somewhere. It, you know we're really really good at a lot of the parts and I think you need to be putting the parts together to look at movement in a more efficient way yeah oh that's fascinating where, where can people find you to find out more about uh, your work and and read maybe even read your PhD yep so the um I think the PhD will be in the um uh, Southampton University I think they're just about to upload it shortly so that can be found there um, in the thesis repository um, my teaching work is all done through Chimera Movement Science chimeramovementscience.com and we can see the different elements the kinetic control which is more the pain and the clinical side performance matrix really looking more at the multi-joints or sporting movement and then I my clinic is the movementworks.co.uk um, and I can you know I see people online really you know, from wherever. And really that's based on movement coaching. And, and I think it's really, um, I think it is, you can see and assess movement very effectively online. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I think, you know, for any people who are unsure about using online as a, as a clinician or, or, or as a client stroke, stroke patient, just to reassure that it is it is fantastic um and and there's a lot of um convenience and you can do all the things that you would do in the clinic um so yeah no i agree i think it's it's definitely the way forward great to see people face to face of course but you know this is a definite option um for now and for the future so brilliant well listen it's been great to hear about your work and, and thanks for sharing your your thoughts well, thank you very much. It's been a great opportunity. Good stuff. All right. Well, keep in touch. Thank you.